This episode contains explicit content regarding a child and may be uncomfortable for some listeners. The following podcast contains explicit content and is not suitable for all listeners. According to a 2018 global study on homicide by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, quote, while the vast majority of homicide victims are men killed by strangers, women are far more likely to die at the hands of someone they know. Women killed by intimate partners or family members account for 58%, of all female homicide victims reported globally, end quote. On December 31st, 1998, a 15-year-old teenager took her family dog on a walk and disappeared without a trace. Her body was later discovered in a wooded area 40 kilometers or 24 miles from her home just one day before her 16th birthday. And to this day, no one has been charged in her murder. This is the story of Kirsty Bentley. Kirsty Marianne Bentley was born on January 18, 1983, to parents Jill and Sydney Bentley in Christchurch, New Zealand. She was the youngest child with a brother named John, who was four years older. Kirsty was a bubbly teenager attending Ashburton College in Ashburton, New Zealand, where her family lived. She was described as vivacious, with a zest for life that drew people to her. Her mother described her as having, quote, only two speeds, top gear and stop. Kirsty just seemed so darn happy with life, end quote. She loved drama, poetry, and animals, especially the family dog, Abby. She had a close-knit group of friends and had recently begun dating a boy named Graham Offord. Although it is on my travel list, I have yet to travel to New Zealand. So for those of us not familiar with the country, here's a bit of information. As always, if I mispronounce anything or get my information wrong, please let me know by contacting me on my Instagram at femicide underscore podcast, where I will also post photos from this case if you're interested. New Zealand is a country in the South Pacific Ocean made up of two large islands, the North Island and the South Island, as well as approximately 600 to 700 smaller islands. The South Island is larger, but is less populated, with only 23% of the country's population living on it. As the capital city of Wellington and the most populated city of Auckland are located in the North Island, 
among other highly populated urban areas. Christ Church is the largest city on the South Island and is located on the East Coast. Ashburton is a town located 86 kilometers or 54 miles west of Christchurch and has a population of 20,200 as of 2020. So it's a relatively larger town and is located in the greater Canterbury region, which has a population of 645,900 as of 2020. On the morning of December 31st, 1998, Kirsty was getting ready and asked her mother to help her pin the blue and white sarong she was wearing, feeling self-conscious, saying, quote, I think I'm showing too much leg, end quote. Her mother pinned it closed more using a safety pin before waving goodbye to her daughter as she ran out the front door. Her mother remembering that morning saying, quote, I remember her waving to me as she went past the windows on the front side of the house. My gaze followed her. I was waving too and smiling at her excitement. It's still such a sweet memory, end quote. Kirsty's mother, Jill, left for work at 9.30 a.m. that morning after pinning the sarong. Kirsty met up with a friend and the two went to a store called The Warehouse, where she purchased soft plush toys at 11.07 a.m. before heading to McDonald's for lunch and then to KFC for a drink, which were all caught on CCTV cameras. She arrived home and put her shopping bags on her bed before placing a phone call at 2.38 p.m. to her boyfriend. He didn't answer, and she left a message. Sometime around 3 p.m., she took the family dog, Abby, out for a walk, as she did every day. There are sightings of Kirsty until about 4 p.m. from various neighbors, including a shop owner, but varying discrepancies in her appearance and the timeline gave some confusion about the accuracy of these sightings. Jill returned home from work at 5.15 p.m. that day and was immediately greeted by her son, John, who was 19 years old at the time, who said, quote, where the fuck is Christy, end quote. She hadn't returned home from the walk yet, and neither had their dog, Abby, which he said he realized when, at 4.30 p.m., Kirsty's boyfriend, Graham, called her back. Jill went to Kirsty's room first to check for her daughter and found the shopping bags laying there and the plush toys lined up. She said she felt a stillness, an eeriness, that immediately gave her pause. She knew something bad had happened, saying, quote, I will never forget the stillness. Maybe it's just a mother's instinct. When I walked into her bedroom, the quiet was loud and clear. It was an unforgettable feeling. It was eerie in there. There was nothing to feel anymore. I knew she wasn't alive. End quote. Although she was filled with dread, Jill called Graham to see if Kirsty was there before walking the route her daughter often took with the dog. But by 6 p.m., Kirsty had still not returned home, and her father, Sid, finally called the police once he returned home and was notified of his daughter's disappearance. 
A missing persons report was filed, and the search for 15-year-old Kirsty began right away, as police, family, and friends banded together to help find the missing teen. Unfortunately, nothing was found the first night of her disappearance, and the search went well into the night. At 8 a.m. the next day, January 1st, 1999, the search resumed, and at 10 a.m. that morning, the family dog, Abby, was found, tied to a tree in a dense area of foliage beside the Ashburton River near Robillard Park. This area had been roughly searched the following evening, and nothing was found at the time. So it's speculated that the dog was tied up earlier that morning before the search began, but that is not known for sure. Beside the river was also underwear and boxer shorts that had been given to Kirsty that Christmas by her mother. These findings were extremely troublesome, and police began to fear the worst had happened to Kirsty Bentley. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to my podcast. The concept behind femicide is very close to my heart, and I hope through these stories we can shed a light on the abuse, violence, and sexual assault that women face daily. This podcast is a 100% one-woman operation. I research, write, record, and edit every single episode myself. To help support me and my efforts, I have started a Patreon account. If you aren't familiar with Patreon, it is a membership-based platform designed to allow fans to support and connect with their favorite creators. Sign up today online at patreon.com or via the Patreon app. I will leave a link in the show notes of this episode. As always, I will be donating 10% of all gifts received and memberships every month to various charities that help support women. The charity I will be donating to for the month of October 2021 is Women's College Hospital. Located in Toronto, WCH is a leader in health for women, health equity, and health system solutions. Quote, We advocate for health equity because we know that a healthy society requires a level playing field where everyone has access to timely, high-quality, efficient, and compassionate care. End quote. Gifts, while deeply appreciated, are not the only way you can show support. It would mean a lot if you would subscribe to my podcast and leave a review, as it really helps to bring awareness to these stories. And please don't forget to share with your friends and families, because word of mouth is the best review of all. Following the findings of Kirsty's dog and undergarments, the search for Kirsty intensified and expanded throughout the Canterbury area, which totaled 44,508 square kilometers or 17,185 square miles. The New Zealand Army even sent in troops to help aid in the search. But sadly, on January 17th, 1999, 18 days after she initially went missing, and just one day before her 16th birthday, the body of Kirsty Bentley was discovered in a secluded wooded area, curled up in the fetal position, and covered in leaves. 
She was wearing the clothes she had on when she went missing, except for the undergarments found with Abby. Kirsty's remains were found roughly 40 kilometers or 24 miles from her home in Ashburton by two men out looking for illegal cannabis patches that are known to be in that area. The fact they stumbled upon her body is a miracle in and of itself. She was at the bottom of a steep embankment, which had a large paddock at the top. A paddock is an enclosure for horses, and larger ones tend to consist of grass or dirt. In the photo from the area she was found, there are manicured grass areas separated by wooded areas, so perhaps there are multiple paddocks in that area, or a large horse farm. I'm not sure how that works, but you can see it in the photo on my Instagram page. Kirsty's autopsy revealed her cause of death to be blunt force trauma. Her skull was severely fractured, and she likely would have died soon after the impact. Her body was in a state of severe decomposition due to the peak summer weather in New Zealand at the time, and it was impossible to tell if she had been sexually assaulted. It's thought she was killed the very day she went missing and was placed in the area of Camp Gully that same night due to the contents of her stomach and the level of decomposition her body was in. Police blocked off the area and ordered a no-fly zone above while they thoroughly collected evidence and searched for any leads that pointed to a suspect. They even put out a public request for the illegal cannabis growers or anyone in that area to come forward if they saw anything. But unfortunately, Kirsty's case was at a dead end almost immediately. Kirsty's mother went ahead with her daughter's birthday celebrations as planned, even after her body was discovered. Obviously, much more low-key. They brought cake to the police, and everyone celebrated the young woman who had touched so many in her short life. Her mother saying in an interview, quote, We raised our glasses to the birthday girl, and we also said, rest in peace, end quote. She was laid to rest on January 25, 1999, in a funeral at St. Stephen's Anglican Church, and her body was cremated and placed in a specially designed memorial garden at her family home. Her parents divorced in 2000, and her father passed away in 2015 from cancer. Her mother has since remarried, and upon Sid's passing, Jill removed Kirsty's ashes from the garden and put them in her new home, proudly displayed on the mantle with a photo of Kirsty giving the thumbs up. Her mother Jill stating, quote, We often joke with her. We say, Is it Noel's turn to make the drinks? Kirsty, bless her, always has her thumb up. End quote. Adding, quote, On the way to bed, I walk past Kirsty's urn on the mantelpiece and say, Night night, darling. End quote. Her mother was so happy to be reunited with Kirsty's urn as I assume following the divorce and her new marriage, she didn't get to see Kirsty's garden very often, if at all. She stated in the interview, quote, Oh, how I hugged and kissed that flask. We just wanted to get Kirsty home, where she belonged, end quote. She met her second husband, Noel, online in 2001 
and the two married in 2008, and now live in Invercargill, which is on the southwest edge of the South Island, and is roughly 475 kilometers, or 295 miles, from Ashburton. Kirsty's brother John went on to continue his studies in Sydney, Australia, and remains close to his mother. But initially, John and his father Sid were considered suspects in Kirsty's case. Sid first claimed to be out of town, listing Christchurch and Lyttelton as his whereabouts, but later claimed to have hit his head on a cupboard door and forgot he was also in Ashburton for part of the day. His alibi has never been proven, at least not publicly, with family and friends believing he was likely embarrassed to say what he was doing that day, but that they don't believe he was involved. In a more recent article, Sid was described as an alcoholic, and that was likely the reason for mixed accounts of his whereabouts, whether he forgot or didn't want to say he was out drinking. Jill stated, quote, I can only wonder if he was doing something he wouldn't have wanted to be publicly aired. Again, a very proud Englishman. He took his secret to the grave. It doesn't fit the timing, and I couldn't imagine him hurting Kirsty. End quote. John was into computer games and heavy metal. He was in a second year of university at the time and was home for the holidays. He and Kirsty spoke, but with their age difference, they sort of kept to themselves. Theories of him being jealous of Kirsty's boyfriend Graham swirled, and it was believed he either accidentally killed or purposefully killed her, and that her father came home to find her dead and decided to help his son cover it up, taking her body to Camp Gully and leaving John to stage the scene by the river. Again, this was never proven, and Jill wholeheartedly believes not only would Sid not have helped in that way, but that the timeline would be just way too tight to make it plausible. Her brother also publicly stated he understood that he and his father would be considered suspects, but denied any involvement. They were considered formal suspects, and I'm not sure if they were ever ruled out completely, but they were never charged. Jill stated in an interview when asked about them being considered suspects, quote, Yes, that was horrid, but when I got through the shock, I decided that whatever had happened, John would have my love and support. I told the detective, bring me the evidence and I'll accept the story. I'm still waiting. End quote. And on a quick side note, I'm not saying that this proves any kind of guilt whatsoever. It's just an interesting kind of side note. But upon his passing, Sid Bentley actually cut John out of his will completely and left his house to the New Life Church and Cancer Society of New Zealand Christchurch. So I'm not sure if that was his way of trying to make amends for his alcoholism or if that was his way of trying to implicate his son without coming outright and saying it, but it is interesting. A private investigator named Chuck Burton, who was a retired detective in Britain, 
was brought onto the case at some point, and he believes Kirsty knew her murderer because of how her body was left and the general nature of the crime. I'm not sure the timeline of when he was brought into the investigation, but the police initiated his involvement. Usually the family hires private investigators, and often in cases where the police aren't getting anywhere. But it appears like the police welcomed this fresh set of eyes and expertise in this case. The media involvement in this case was intense, almost hindering the investigation in ways, and were criticized for announcing Kirsty's body was found before it was formally confirmed. Kirsty's case is considered one of the most high-profile, unsolved cases in New Zealand's history. A blue, green-blue, or green-colored van was spotted in the area Kirsty went missing by a mechanic in the area, and police began asking for public assistance in locating it. This was a very specific 1961 Calmer van, and I'll have a similar one on my Instagram for you to see, but Calmer vans are vintage vans with a distinct logo, and it had been modified to be used as a camper, which is a popular vehicle for tourists to use to travel around New Zealand. At least at the time, in particular, that model was popular, but I've heard the best way to see New Zealand is by driving a camper van around, too. So it's a very common occurrence. Witnesses also claimed to have seen a similar van, or the same van, in Ashburton, and Camp Gully in the time before Kirsty's murder. But even with such a distinct vehicle and description, the camper van has never been found, at least to public knowledge. There is also interest in a girl seen near the van, close to where Kirsty went missing, but the connection was never publicly announced, nor does it appear the girl ever came forward despite her being recognized as a customer of a local dairy farm. It just makes me wonder if this mysterious girl was involved and perhaps she was the personal link that the private investigator hypothesized. Maybe it was her boyfriend or her husband that asked her to help lure a young woman into his vehicle. I grew up in Canada, and if you've ever heard of Carla Homolka, then you know how possible that scenario is. In 2014, a man named Russell John Tully murdered two women who worked at Work and Income in Ashburton, which I looked up and it's essentially a program designed to help low or no income persons to find housing and get on their feet. He was wanting more benefits, it appears, and was denied, leading to him storming their offices and shooting the two women working to death. The New Zealand media heavily speculated that Russell John Tully was involved in Kirsty's murder, as he was in the area at the time of her disappearance and had some mental health issues, but he was eventually dismissed as a suspect in Kirsty's murder, due to his alibi. Other men were questioned and ruled out over the years. I won't go over every suspect, but many theories exist about what happened that day, 
and who was behind Kirsty's murder. Although the police have had hundreds of suspects over the 22 plus years that Kirsty's case has been open, to this date, no one has ever been charged with her murder. But thanks to ongoing advancements in DNA testing and genetic genealogy, police are still hopeful that one day there will be answers. In fact, in 2018, it was announced the DNA from the undergarments and the dog leash were being tested at the Institute of Environment Science and Research in New Zealand. These kinds of testings can take much longer than depicted on TV, so while it feels like it might have had no results, only time will tell. And if you have any information at all in this case, please reach out to New Zealand authorities. We want to see Kirsty's murderer brought to justice. Kirsty had her whole life ahead of her and did not deserve such a terrible fate. But her spirit and zest for life will live on in the hearts of those she touched. I hope one day we will have answers as to what happened to Kirsty and that her family can finally have closure. But remarkably, her mother has found some peace, keeping her daughter close to her heart, but choosing to live and not let Kirsty's murderer take her life too. Saying, quote, I'd love her murder to be solved, but I don't let it rule my thoughts. Let the killer squirm. I have a life to lead, end quote. And it sounds like her daughter wouldn't want her to live any other way. Thank you for listening to the story of Kirsty Bentley. I'm your host, Sean Marie. Join me next time for another story.